What was that? <laughs> Hopefully we don't have that all night, all day. All day and night. Good morning, everyone. How's North Shore doing today? Awesome. It's good to see you. It's always good to come here and see your smiling faces. As you know, for months, the teaching team would preach to an empty room. <laughs> and, uh, and that's no fun. So it's just great to see your, your faces. And of course, you online so appreciate um, all of us participating this morning in what God is doing here at this church and in our communities. We heard about that with the baskets and, and the other things. And it's just, you guys, despite everything, it's a great time to participate in God's work. Amen? Amen. So, as you know, we've been in the book of Ruth for the past few weeks. And today, we're going to cover chapter 4, which will be the end of this story. It's a short book, but it's a really, really powerful story. And really, <clears throat> it's the backdrop for the larger story of God's... I'm going to sound like I'm clearing my throat here because I'm going to speak Hebrew for just one moment. Are you ready? Chesed. Chesed is a Hebrew word. It's notoriously different or difficult to translate. Uh, it, it could be translated as unfailing love or loving kindness or mercy. But this story of Ruth is really the backdrop of God's chesed for all of humanity. This is a Hebrew word that speaks of a completely undeserved kindness and generosity done by a person who is in a position of power. A word that describes Boaz's interactions with Ruth and God's unending grace and mercy and his loving kindness that we see here throughout the story and what leads to the arrival of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, which we will talk about at the end today. But before we go any further, let's pray. Jesus, we just invite you into this space. And Lord, we know that you're already here. But God, we ask that you would show up in ways, Lord, that, that we desperately need you to do. With so many uncertainties and difficulties and, and hopes that have been deferred all year, Jesus, we... We need Christmas. We need to celebrate Christmas like we've never celebrated it before. And we need to believe in the hope that you offer all of us. Regardless of what happens, regardless of our circumstances, God, we can have hope in you, and you do not disappoint us. I pray that you'd speak to us, Jesus, and that we'd have eyes to see today and ears to hear of your glory and your loving kindness and your enduring faithfulness and your mercy and your love for us. In Jesus' name, amen. I wasn't expecting that. <clears throat> okay, so for those of you, for those of us who have missed any part of this story, briefly, 
Naomi and her husband and her two sons, Chilion and Malon, leave for Beth. They leave Bethlehem. Bethlehem is Hebrew for the house of bread. And they leave because there's a huge famine in the land. Think about that. The house of bread has a famine. And they move to Moab. As you know, this is a very undesirable place for the Jews, a place where they worship false gods, have detestable practices, and even the women have a bad reputation. Elimelech, Naomi's husband, dies while they're there. And her two sons marry Moabite women named Ruth and Oprah. Then her sons die. Both sons die. And Naomi decides to return home to Bethlehem, and her daughter-in-law, Ruth, decides to remain with her and to worship her God, Yahweh, and to move back to Bethlehem with Naomi. You guys, as you can imagine, <clears throat> Naomi is in tremendous pain from losing her husband and her two sons and one daughter-in-law who stayed behind, right? And now to those who knew her from before, she says this, call me Mara, which means bitter, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. Imagine that. Hey guys, uh, you know, I'm back, and I uh, used to be Naomi, but just call me bitter. Can you imagine? But my friends, that's reality. That's where she's at, at this point in the story. Also worth noting is that as widows and childless, and Ruth being not only a foreigner but from Moab, the deck is totally stacked against them. Furthermore, as women with no male heir to carry on the family's name and lineage, Naomi's aware that she will most likely lose the land and the property that belongs to her late husband. It's like it goes from bad to worse to even worse, right? Imagine Ruth completely alone in a foreign land now for her, except for her mother-in-law, a widow, a young widow, childless. She's a foreigner and a cursed. She's a foreigner from a cursed land, I should say. And now she's destitute and at the mercy of others' charity. See, they came back at the beginning of the barley season, and now Ruth goes into the barley fields to glean. It's a practice among the poor that allows them to gather the sheaves of grain that are dropped like on the margins of the fields. So like they're either not gathered on the margins because it's too difficult. Some of these sheaves are dropped. The poor are allowed to glean, which is obviously a minimal amount, right? So Ruth 2, uh, 3, chapter 2, verse 3 says, so she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers, and she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. This is one of her relatives. I'm going to read that again. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers, and she happened 
to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. Friends, this is the point where the entire story that we've been hearing about and reading about changes. Everything changes from this point on. And as we learned from Tyler last week, nothing happens by chance, does it? God's fingerprints are all over this story. And through his infinite mercy and loving kindness to Ruth and Naomi, we read about her being noticed by Boaz in the field. And he, his invitation to have her return to glean from his fields and his extraordinary generosity that we read about in making sure she returns to her mother-in-law with more grain than she could have possibly gleaned on her own initiative. He's always making, hey, leave some more for her. Make sure she gets it, right? He's so kind in this. And throughout chapters 2 and 3, we see how Naomi, who's about to lose her land since her husband has died, and of course she's too old to marry again, or to produce a male child who can carry on a Limelech's family line, she now hopes that Boaz, a relative of her late husband, will choose to buy their property and to marry Ruth. Now, Leviticus and Deuteronomy, they both describe this practice where a kinsman or a near family member can act as a kinsman redeemer and buy back land that has been lost due to poverty or the absence of a male heir. They can also buy back a family member who's um, been sold into slavery and they're able to marry the wife of a deceased brother who is without sons, again, in order to carry on the family lineage. A couple things about a kinsman redeemer that we need to know. A kinsman redeemer must be a near kinsman. We learn in chapter 2 that Boaz is related to Elimelech, right? And in chapter 3, when Boaz wakes up on the threshing floor, if you remember Tyler preached on that last week, and he asks, who are you? And Ruth replies, I'm Ruth. Spread the corner of your garment over me since you are a kinsman redeemer. She uses that word. And ironically enough, you might not have caught it, but this was a marriage proposal by Ruth. And Boaz agrees to it. But he also informs her that there's a kinsman redeemer closer related to him and to her than, than he is to Naomi. So he needs to discuss this whole thing with him. And so now we get to chapter 4. It says, The next morning Boaz goes into the town to the city gate. He gathers ten elders as witnesses to what's about to happen here. He finds that nearest relative or that nearer relative and tells him, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. He says, sure, I'll redeem it. He knows the protocol, right? And then Boaz says, well, there's just a mm, little detail I left out. Just, just one more thing you should know. 
The day you buy, this is Ruth 4, 5, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Okay. Well, that changes a few things. Hey, not only do you get the land, but you get this woman as a wife. What do you think? He's like, "Uh uh-uh. That's not going to work. 4.6. He says, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. The good chance he had a wife and kids already. He didn't want to mess up that whole system that he had worked out there. So he says this, take my Take my right of inheritance, or redemption, excuse me. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. So, he's a near kinsman. He's not the nearest kinsman, but he talks to the nearest kinsman, and the nearest kinsman says, hey, no, I'm not going to do it. You do it. So he gives up, in a sense, that right of refusal. He gives him the opportunity. So here's another thing, if you're taking your notes. A kinsman redeemer must be willing to redeem. And we know from the whole story that Boaz was not only willing, right, but he cared for her. He cared for her and Naomi deeply. Ruth was a woman of honor. Woman was great. Ruth was gracious. Ruth was kind, and he showed showed great kindness and mercy and compassion and generosity toward her like we just talked about. And now by becoming her husband, he would provide a son and the family lineage of Elimelech is allowed to continue. So a kinsman redeemer must be a near kinsman, must be willing to redeem, and must be able to redeem. And we again, again, we know from this story that Boaz was a man of great wealth, right? He had property and the financial means to redeem Naomi's property. And the will, we saw this, and the resolve, and the motivation, and we saw this as well, to redeem Ruth and to give her a son. So imagine the scene at the end of this story. The women who Naomi had asked, remember, to call her bitter, they're now rejoicing with her over the birth of her grandson. And they're saying this, verse 14, chapter 4, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a Redeemer, And may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to you, Naomi. They named him Obed, which means servant of God or worshiper of God. 
He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. My friends, I can't think of a more beautiful scene to be left with in any story. The grandmother holding this grandson, being surrounded by the folks in the community who are so excited for her, who recognize that this is God's provision for her, that this lineage would continue, that he would be special in the eyes of the Lord. Ruth is now married again to Boaz, this amazing guy. Naomi has an opportunity to to speak life and truth and grace and God's goodness and God's faithfulness into her grandson. Right? It's like that hallmark moment in a sense. And it's beautiful. It's a beautiful scene. It's God's chesed, his loving kindness and his mercy and his provision of an heir to continue that family line Bitterness turns to joy. Fear turns to hope. Hope of a blessed future. And as we know in this church especially, hope changes everything. My friend, that's, that's where the story of Ruth ends. And the story of our kinsman redeemer begins over 1300 years go by between Obed and Jesus and another story unfolds in the little town of Bethlehem the gospel of Luke tells us of a couple of sojourners who travel to Bethlehem to be counted in a census Right? There's no room at the inn for them. Is this, is this starting to resonate? You've heard this story. And that night, do you remember in an outlying building that's meant for livestock? Mary gives birth to a son. Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world. And the angels rejoice, and the shepherds leave their flocks, and they come to welcome the newborn king. The king of kings who becomes our kinsman, redeemer. So let's take a look for just a couple minutes at Christ as our kinsman, redeemer. My friends, Christ took our humanity on himself. We read about in Galatians 4, 4 through 7. And I just, I just picked like one or two verses of all these. There's so many that you can read about. But here's one, Galatians 4, 4 through 7. Paul writes, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that we might receive adoption as Son into our hearts. Father, so you are no longer a slave, but a son and a daughter. And if a son or a daughter, then an heir through God. 
My friends, Jesus is born of a human being. And God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts crying, Abba, Father. Abba is a term of endearment I'm aware of in uh, Aramaic, I believe. It means Daddy. We can call our Heavenly Father Daddy because of the relationship that we have with His Son. Fully God and fully human. Christ became our near kinsman as the blood of humanity pumped in his veins. So Christ as our kinsman redeemer took our humanity on himself to become a near kinsman. He was also willing to go to the cross. Lamentations 3.22 and 23 says, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. How many of you believe that? I do. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every single morning. And great is his faithfulness. And this is what he does for us. Looking to Jesus, Hebrews 12, 2, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of God. My friends, he was, he was not only willing to endure the cross, but the joy that was set before him allowed him to do that. He saw each one of us this is why I'm doing this, for the sake of humanity. And then Romans 5.8, but God shows his love once again for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Isn't that amazing? He didn't wait for us to clean up our act and log so many hours in the church lobby and, you know, do all these righteous things and I mean, maybe those are part of, you know, our life as, as believers. But he died while we were still in darkness. While we were still sinners, Christ came and died on a cross. He was also able to redeem, right, like Boaz. But he was able to redeem all of humanity. 1 Peter 3.18 says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. And then 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. What in the world? Why did he do that? We are undeserving of that. And yet his loving kindness prevailed. His chesed. Over and over and over again. In Ruth, in her story, and in our story. My friends, this, I believe, is an overwhelming example of God's great love for us. Our God, who, know, who knew 
that silent night in Bethlehem so long ago where Mary and Joseph held their newborn son Jesus and gave thanks and praise to Almighty God. God knew that one day this same son, his son, right, Jesus, as a grown man, would choose not to pass on his responsibility to become that sacrificial lamb for us. A God who turned his back on sin itself while Jesus hung on a cross and cried out, Lama, Lama, Sabachthani. My God, Eloi, Eloi, Lama, Sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Kind of manger scene here we're familiar with, I'm sure. There's so many. But I love this. You guys, more than ever, I want to drink in. I want to, I want to just sit and sip at this, this celebration of Christmas. We have three weeks. Three weeks. 19 days, I think, now. I want to remember everything. I want to look at every single light that I walk by. I want to, I want to remember every aspect of Christmas. I still have my tree sitting in a bucket outside since Thursday, but I'm gonna, we're going we're gonna to string lights today. That's our goal, okay? Right? We've all been busy, but my friends, I do not want to let that pass me by because I want to remember like we're called to remember. This is, this is the first stanza of a song you're familiar with. O little town of Bethlehem, how still we see thee lie. Above thy deep and dreamless sleep, the silent stars go by. Yet in thy dark streets shineth the everlasting light, the hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. The hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. A friend asked me last week, like, what does that mean? And I'm like, I have no idea. I've sung this song a thousand times. Let's take a look at that. What does that last line mean? My friends, this is what I've concluded. It means that whatever hopes, whatever fears you've had for 2020 or in the years prior to that, hope deferred. How many of you had vacations planned and birthday parties planned and weddings planned and, and memorials that you didn't plan, but they happened and we couldn't be there to celebrate these things? And it's tragic. I know it's been hard. And hope deferred makes the heart sick. Or so I've heard, and so I've experienced, and I know some of you have too. All those hopes, all those dreams, and those fears, all of them, every one of them, they were met that night in Bethlehem, that holy silent night at the birth of our Savior Christ the Lord. That's when they were met. And they will continue to be met. We need to put those on him.
Allow him to take those burdens from us. Allow him to give us the hope, even when we can't find it on our own. The one who notices the unnoticed. The one who loves the unlovely. The one who provides for the needy, who protects the vulnerable, who brings dignity to the poor and the powerless, who restores hope for the hopeless. The one who finds and saves the lost and who sets the captives free. That's our Savior. That's Christ the Lord. That's who we're celebrating. And it's worth it. Every day. It's worth it. Because of His great love for us and His kindness and His mercy and His grace. Isaiah 7.14 says this. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. We sang that song, but do you believe it? Do you believe that God is with you? Do you believe that God is with us right now? Yes. So I just want us to take the next few minutes to consider one question. Hopefully it's coming up here. In light of God being with us, right? And His loving kindness that we learned about today, that Hebrew word chesed. In light of God being with us and His loving kindness toward you, what are some tangible ways that you can be an instrument of his love and his mercy and his grace to those in your sphere of influence this holiday season. I'm going to share with you a story of something that happened to me yesterday where God was reminding me, yes, Mark, you're going to ask them to do that and you're going to do that, right? And this is how that played out yesterday. I went to get some coffee at Starbucks at uh, the Snohomish Station, Starbucks there. And there's, as you know, lots of shops around there, and there's a big parking lot, and then there's, you know, a little, little drive through here. And so I drove up, and I, I was going to get in the drive through but it was packed. There was cars all the way out to, you know, where the parking lot is. And so I just stopped. Here's the entrance. There was a car right here, so I'm just stopped, and I turned my signal on, and I'm sitting here, I'm waiting to take a left turn and want to keep, you know, the lane open here so people can go back and forth. And about 15, 20 seconds later, a car pulls up in this part of the parking lot, right? So now here we are. I'm here. This woman pulls up here. I don't know, a minute goes by. Cars finally start to move. I go, I take my left, right? As soon as I turned in there, what? She's honking at me. I'm like, are you kidding me? I got here before she did, obviously. She saw me. She saw my turn signal on. Like, what is her problem, right? And I'm just all steamed about this, right? And I order. I'm like, why am I so upset? And I get up to the window, and the Lord, such a gracious way, just says, Mark, pay for her order. 
I'm like, no. Yes, Mark, you need a blesser, not curser. Oh, yeah, that's right. I learned that. Okay. So I did. I paid for her. Ended up being, you know, $6.99, I think. And, right? Not a big deal at all. But what God did in my heart was the most important thing. And I'm asking us, what is it for you? I need to go back to Starbucks, maybe today. I need to do that again. And I need to do that again. And I need to do that again. Right? Because people need to know that there's other people out there who care. And so I paid for her order, and I said, will you just wish her a Merry Christmas from me? And I drove off. What could it be for us? Thank you.